Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa program. Welcome back to Africa Aware. On this episode, we'll be reflecting on the key messages from our Green Financing and Just Transition series that took place last year in the lead-up to COP27. African countries face collective climate and employment-related challenges. However, policymaking often remains regionally siloed according to different political, energy sector and ecological realities. The Africa programme saw a need for transformational strategic thinking and context-specific action from African governments, civil society, businesses and financiers in their green financing demands and national implementation plans. That's what the series was all about. Events convened in Nairobi, Kenya, Libreville, Gabon and Addis Ababa, Ethiopia sought to address this challenge. Across this episode, we'll be hearing key interventions from each of these conferences. This will be followed by reflections from three experts from the Africa programme. I'm very lucky to be joined by Paul Melly, Associate Fellow, Christopher Van Dome, Senior Research Fellow and Tigisti Amari, Deputy Director of the Africa programme for these reflections. We really hope you enjoy listening. First, we hear from Abu Bamba, chairman of the organising committee of the 15th conference of the parties, COP15, to the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, or otherwise known as UNCCD. Agricultural systems and forest conservation are not mutually exclusive. They must work hand in hand in a win-win setup. This will help addressing several issues at the same time, such as increasing the food production, reducing the foodstuff prices, addressing deforestation issue, addressing the climate issues, protecting peace, democracy, and security. Land degradation as well as forest degradation are a major threat to democracy, peace, and security because they're creating some socioeconomic problems that will create some uprising and dissatisfaction amongst the people. To achieve this, we need some major investments. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us on Africa Aware today. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Mr. Abu Bamba, on the importance, or his proposition, on the importance of how environmental and financial policy must work hand in hand in order to get the best possible outcomes for populations and for governments. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's it's a thought-provoking remark because it reminds us that African governments, like governments everywhere, are juggling different priorities. And so there is, of course, going to be an environment minister or a conservation minister or a forestry minister who's very focused on those environmental goals, uh, protecting biodiversity, combating climate change, protecting the environment against erosion, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, you also have economic ministries that are facing very pressing demands to get their budgets balanced, to bring in enough tax revenue from the key revenue-generating sectors of the economy that are uh, very wary of stepping up expenditure on things like subsidies that have a rather different goal and whose entire mindset is really focused on boosting economic growth and uh, strengthening public finances. So, Mr. Bamba's remarks are really important because they remind us that somehow government needs to be joined up. The ministers with their very different priorities nevertheless need to 
find a way of reconciling their goals so that a country is pursuing a strategy that makes sense, that's coherent. And we have a very good example in Côte d'Ivoire itself. It's the world's biggest cocoa producer, but it is also trying to restore its rainforest belt. And the cocoa, of course, is cultivated in the areas, largely in the areas that used to be forest. The Ivorian government is facing the very difficult challenge. It's trying to develop a new approach to cocoa farming that is allows for some restoration of that forest with all the environmental benefits that brings, but which will also allow cocoa to continue as one of the country's major products and sustain the incomes of the farmers who are growing it. Thank you so much for that answer there, Paul. And to follow up there slightly, in a piece available on the Chatham House website, written ahead of COP27 by Mr. Bamba and Bob Dewar, an associate fellow with the Africa Programme, they highlight the importance of regional cooperation on the management of forest, wildlife and water resources. As you know, more than anyone, Africa's ecosystems don't necessarily respect arbitrary political boundaries. What work is being done on a regional level to coordinate and ensure that Africa's resources are well looked after? Well, we do have some big regional initiatives um, in the Congo Basin, for example, and perhaps most strongly integrated in the Sahel, which is one of the most environmentally fragile regions of the continent, but which in response to the droughts of the 70s and 80s, so many decades ago, set up a coordinated regional system for all the countries in the Sahel to work together in trying to monitor the impact of uh, drought, climate change, manage food security. And what that has done has developed a, a very big degree of coordination and common strategy among all these countries. They are very broadly pursuing the same approach and gradually the geographical footprints being expanded. So the organization CILS, C-I-L-S-S, based in Ouagadougou that runs this strategy, Nigeria isn't yet a member, but now Nigeria is in a a technical partnership, a technical cooperation arrangement with CILS to ensure coordination. Because if you take the very practical example of the boundary, for example, the border between Niger and Nigeria, It's the same type of agriculture. It's the same social structure, for example, uh, the Kanuri or the Hausa people who live across the border, regardless of the frontier line that is drawn, if you like. And very similar environmental challenges and challenges in managing, for example, tackling soil erosion in a region that's quite densely populated and where the environment's under a lot of pressure. So coordinated approaches are happening. But certainly there is scope, I'm sure, to do more. And we can see, if if you think of coastal West Africa, that forest belt that the Ivorians are trying to restore and rebuild, there's a whole range of coastal West African countries from Cameroon and Nigeria in the east, as it were, of the region, right through to Sierra Leone, um, Guinea, the Casamance region of Senegal, uh, Guinea-Bissau in the far west, In all of these countries, forest is under pressure from agriculture and those challenges of how to reconcile the protection of the environment with economic strategies to boost both economic growth and food security, they're they're evident. And if 
West Africa can coordinate policies if the countries in the region can work together so that they pursue approaches that complement each other and fit with each other and develop common standards, as has already happened in the Sahel with these policies to combat drought and food insecurity, if the forest belt countries can also develop a, a shared approach, that will be more effective in protecting the forest and all things associated with it, the biodiversity, the climate impacts as well. Thanks so much for your insights there, Paul. It's been a pleasure having you on. It's been uh, great to be with you. Thanks very much, Yusuf. Our second clip is from an intervention by Linda Mabena Olagunju, founder and CEO of DLO Energy Resources Group. The jobs created in the renewable energy space are a lot when you're talking during construction phase. So they're created in the thousands. What is often underreported is what happens when these energy plants start operating. Renewable energy by virtue is a high-tech sector, meaning that it is not very labor dependent. So the jobs reduce. And what we need to be asking ourselves as Africans is, how are we going to have this just energy transition not result in massive job losses? If you look at a country like South Africa, 60,000, above 60,000 jobs are created in the coal industry. Another 50,000 of those jobs are created by ESCOM, which is predominantly powered by um, traditional energy sources such as gas and uh, coal. It's very important we start to ask ourselves, how are we going to plug the gap? And that is dependent largely on what our policy and decision makers in the political space actually do about what they are promising to do. Hi, Chris. Welcome back to Africa. Hi, Yusuf. It's good to be back on the show. So having just heard uh, Linda's intervention at our conference in Nairobi, how do you think policymakers in the world's youngest continent need to react to the challenges that Linda presents, in particular the lack of labour dependency in the new economy we are due to see, reducing the amount of jobs available? Yeah, it's a really important point. And I think, you know, first of all, we were thrilled to have Linda Mabena Olagunju speaking at that conference in Nairobi, because quite often in these policy conversations, the voice of the private sector isn't particularly well heard. And she does, uh, in South Africa, have an advisory role into government as well. So she's well placed to, to talk about some of these issues. And I think some of the key takeaways from that conversation in Nairobi, as well as the work that we've done across the continent, is that, you know, firstly, this is an issue of context. There are some countries where the demands on job creation and demands on labor as part of the just transition are about reskilling workers in countries that already have significant power generation from fossil fuels. Uh, and in other countries, it's a question of upskilling. So there's not a single approach on this. And that's also reflected from African policymakers in multilateral negotiations that you know, different leaders are looking for different things. Now, in terms of that reskilling, there's a number of issues that are faced on the continent in terms of you know, how is it that you can take uh, a labor force that's skilled in a way to serve energy generation needs through existing capacity, particularly in a 
country like South Africa, where so much of the energy is produced from coal. So there's a lot of jobs in coal mining. I think that we've heard that in the clip from Linda. And there's a lot of jobs then in the power generation from that. So it's quite a, a job intensive industry. And the reality is, is that a lot of green energy production isn't that labor intensive. So that's one of the big questions that we were asking. There. Uh, another question around it is the impact on migratory labor, where you've got, for example, circular migration going to areas, um, again, for example, where, where energy generation is dependent on coal mining. Um, a lot of those miners will be coming from all over the country or the region. Uh, and so there's a big question there, and some of the trades unions are already looking into you know, how to deal with that, of how do you reskill a labor force that's migratory? And another question on the labor side is, is balancing local and international workforce. So a lot of the projects that are currently being looked at, there's going to be certainly in this in the startup phase a lot of companies will be looking at bringing in international engineers and constructors and contractors for the the development of these projects and so there's a big question as to how do you get then um, a skills transfer how do you balance between local and international and how do you put in place a plan right from the outset of the project for a, a transition from uh, international to local workforce and uh, in many of these countries there's actually restrictions on the number of international workers that you'll be able to bring in from the outset of some of these projects so those are some of the key issues that we discussed through the project and I think that overall for policymakers there is a real skepticism around some of the job promises from the just transition there's a real skepticism over the figures that have been put forward by consultants and uh, international advisors and others of saying, okay, look, this is, you know, here are the economic incentives for doing this. And that's partly because a lot of the jobs will be at the construction phase. As I say, you know, these are not very labor intensive industries. There's going to be you know, very high skilled workers required for the oversight and management of a lot of green energy projects. But the big demand for labor will come at the, the construction phase. And again, that you know, the overall priority for policymakers is that labor forces will be local. And that's not just meaning local in terms of using your local workforce for that job intensive phase. Uh, it's also used local throughout the life of that project. So using local skills and contractors, using local resources for wearable parts and for maintenance and so on beyond all of this i think for policymakers themselves then you know, if this is the aspiration of having green energy projects that are using a local labor force throughout the life of the project then there's a real policy requirement there which is for clear coherent and consistent policy on this and this was one of Linda's big points that at the moment there's a real stop start way about this and policymakers on the continent, there is a hesitancy on, on some of these big projects and some of these big issues around the energy transition and that's coming through in the way in which policy formulation is being conducted and it isn't creating kind of long planning horizons for investors to come in and say okay, we know what things are going to look like for the foreseeable future and therefore we're confident enough to be able to put down money. And that's, I think, one of the key issues is getting that consistency and coherence 
and creating an enabling environment to absorb some of these big investments in a way that benefits African countries and African citizens. Thanks so much for the robust reflection there. And to really ask a second question based on exactly what you have just said and Linda's initial intervention, you know, an element seen throughout the series, which you, of course, heavily involved in, was the importance of fair and sustainable job creation. Are you able to elaborate of sorts on why this framing was particularly important for the programme in doing this series? One of the purposes of the series for someone like Chatham House, for an institute like ours, was to try and you know provide a space for discussion on some of the more complicated issues where there are differences of opinion and, and where there are potential blockages at the moment that need multi-stakeholder conversations around to try and move forward is the is the ambition or at least to be able to facilitate that dialogue between the different actors and uh, and one of the key questions is as you say you know what is sustainable and fair job creation and i think that for us and for most of the partners on the the project that we work with that means jobs that are sustainable in the long term so both sustainable in time as in like i say not just in the construction phase but that green energy projects are creating local employment throughout the cycle of the project and also sustainable in that these are green jobs so for green energy projects um, it's creating other green jobs in the supply chain and in the value chain so using green energy to make other products for example or you know having local sustainable companies producing things that then service that green energy project so that's the kind of sustainability element and and the key part of that is that that lifespan and then the fair element is that there's a focus on local employment on human and environmental rights protection including workers rights for those in the formal and informal jobs who are part of the supply chain and so that's the fair element fair wages workers rights and uh, ensuring that under the guise of the green transition that this doesn't come at the cost of citizens rights uh, in the places where these projects are putting uh, are being put in once again thanks so much for that chris looking forward to having you on the podcast again soon thanks very much yusuf it's been a pleasure to be uh, be on again and uh, look forward to chatting again soon and our final clip is from an intervention by Ambassador Joseph Asako, African Union Commissioner for Agriculture, Rural Development, Blue Economy and Sustainable Environment. I think the COP27 should be the COP of action and the COP of mobilizing resources. Otherwise, we in Africa, we stop participating in the COPs because it's very expensive for our countries and we go stay in the hotels, very expensive hotels. And at the end of the day, we come back with nothing. So we need to change that narrative. This is the time our children are suffering, our community is suffering. So we need to really change and we need to be bold, you know, in terms of saying that we should have, we should have uh, climate justice. This is the way we cannot even negotiate. We have to have climate justice and to ensure that Africa's special needs are prioritized. This will help us move towards the climate resilient continent and to contribute to the attainment of the aspiration of Agenda 2063 and the Sustainable Development Goal Agenda 2030. 
Hi, Tiggy. Welcome back to Africa Aware. Thank you, Suf. Good to be back. Having just listened to Commissioner Sacco's intervention, she mentions the frustration that African governments have currently with the COP process. Where does this come from? That's a very good question, Yusuf. So I should start by saying that Africa is vulnerable to the negative impacts of climate change. And as repeatedly pointed by African leaders, this vulnerability is happening in spite of the continent contributing to less than 4% of greenhouse gas emission. This disproportionately harmful consequences, which include accelerated desertification, more regular droughts and floods, food insecurity, and changing agricultural conditions, are having economic and social impacts on African countries and populations. This is especially the case for rural communities who depend on natural resources for their livelihoods. But it is also estimated that it's costing African nations an average of 5% of GDP loss. So for climate resilience to succeed in Africa, there is a need for national, regional, continental, and even global ambitions to be aligned with and support economic development priorities, and as such, incorporate job creation and poverty reduction consideration, which are all immediate priorities for African states. The continent is already facing a major challenge of creating sufficient jobs to absorb the number of new entrants into the labor market. As such, industrialization and skilling up of businesses are key to the thinking of most governments across the continent. But achieving all of this uh, is dependent on unlocking funding. A financial assistance for loss and damage was agreed at, at COP27 in November last year, which is a significant milestone. The fund is to be used for rescuing and rebuilding the physical and social infrastructure of countries devastated by extreme weather. But in addition to this, African countries will need more funding for adaptation, which is seen as key for Africa to continue developing, but do this in a green way. However, in spite of the continent's financial exposure, uh, financial flows for adaptation have been persistently low. Currently, only around 20% of global adaptation finance flows to Africa. So there is need for long-term financing for green projects, including on energy, and this can only be achieved by scaling international cooperation on financing, as well as knowledge and technology transfer. This financing will also need to be achieved without increasing the debt burden on African countries. African leaders see international fora such as COP as an opportunity for unlocking the critical financing and cooperation. And Commissioner Sacco's remarks are a reflection of the frustration over the status quo and the challenges they continue to face in advancing their agenda. Thank you so much for that overview, Tiggy. Really, really interesting to hear some of the figures there directly. But when we're talking about the African agenda, we're not too far away from speaking about things like African agency. African agency being a big piece of work we have been focused on since 2019. How does African agency fit into this direct area of work and how does it fit into the just transition? The challenge faced on climate change by African countries is a collective one, but policy and decision making often remains siloed. In order to achieve agency in climate negotiations, there is need for African leaders to speak with a common and unified voice. In an attempt to do this, uh, the African Group of Negotiators on Climate Change, also known as AGN, which is a, an alliance of African member states that represents the interests of uh, the region in climate change negotiations, 
was established at the first COP that was held in Berlin in 1995. But of course, heads of state continue to have the deciding vote on, on issues. Nevertheless, there is a need for better connection and coordination between different national, regional and continental institutions, as well as between negotiators and government representatives. This was not always the case ahead of COP27, for example, where the views of some African governments and that of the negotiators differed. But the issues at hand are very complicated, especially when discussing issues such as energy access. Around 8 million people in Africa lack access to consistent and reliable energy access. And as such, while recognizing that the phasing out of fossil fuels is critical for avoiding irreversible climate change, African governments whose mandate includes delivering development and job creation for their populations want both renewable and non-renewable energy resources to be used to address demand for energy. When this was proposed ahead of COP27 by the African Union, it was quickly rejected by the AGN, who saw it as a distraction from the key priorities, especially in terms of unlocking climate financing, and also to note that African civil society groups also advocate for a low-carbon development for the continent. An incredibly complicated topic there, Tiggy, made much more simpler by your reflection. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us on Africa Aware. Thank you, Yusuf. And that brings us to an end of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe to us on the platform you're listening on to ensure that you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thank you for listening to Africa, where I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.